0: This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and opinions that will probably piss you off. Listener discretion is advised. Arizona is full of dry land, beautiful rock formations, and... Canadians? That last one might only be true part of the time, but during my last road trip down to hell, we saw Canadian cars from almost every province. The only outdoorsy place I've been to in Arizona is Lake Powell, which is right across the Utah border near a town called Page. In case you're wondering why my polar bear ass would set foot anywhere near Arizona, it's because my grandma lives down there. She's moved around a bit, and because of that, I've been able to check out a couple cities down there. Flagstaff was probably my favorite of the three I've stayed in. It's the only one that wasn't hotter than Satan's Ball Sack. But enough about my travels. This isn't called the last Motel 6 I'll ever stay in podcast. You're here for executions, right? As of 2019, Arizona has the 10th highest crime rate in the U.S. According to a friend I had about 10 years ago, Phoenix is a crime-filled hellscape. According to some statistics I looked up, so is Paige. There is a crazy difference in population, yet still high rates of violent crimes. I'm sure that has something to do with the heat. I can't be the only one who loses all patience when it gets above 70 degrees. Since 1976, Arizona has executed a total of 40 people. Only one of those was a federal execution. Ten people have been freed from death row here, and there have been quite a few botched executions in recent years. Which leads me to believe that Arizona has no idea what the fuck they're doing, be it during prosecution or administration of death. Again, that probably has something to do with the heat. (laughs) That shit will fry your brain. Let's get into some cases of desert dwellers who have been put to death for their crimes. I've mentioned before how bad it fucks with my head when I hear a case of domestic violence homicide. I've heard probably thousands of true crime cases in my life, but these ones eat up my soul. Debbie Dietz, a 29-year-old woman, was working in her family's auto body shop in Pima County. Her father, 55-year-old Jean, was also there, along with Jean's brother. Debbie had been trying to leave her boyfriend, Joseph Wood, and had gotten a protective order against him. The relationship had gone on for five turbulent years before it came to this sad truth about protection orders is that abusers do not follow them. No piece of paper is going to stop a psychopath from hurting someone if that's what they truly want. A bullet works much better. Or maybe even a knife. Pepper spray? I guess my point here is arm yourself. Even if you're not a gun person, get something. I personally have all three of those. You can't be too careful, especially if you're as anxious as I am. And if you're going to get at me on Instagram to tell me that victim blaming is wrong, just stop. I'm not victim blaming. It is fucked that we have to live in a society where people hurt other people, but rather than stand around with signs and rant on the internet, do something about it. Take your safety into your own hands. In a perfect world, we wouldn't need to defend ourselves against psychopaths. But it is better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it, whatever it may be. On August 7th, 1989, Debbie's ex-boyfriend, Joseph Wood, walked into the auto body shop where he encountered Gene Deets. He waited for him to hang up the phone before firing a .38 caliber revolver into his chest and killing him. Gene's brother made an attempt to stop Wood but was pushed out of the way. After finding Debbie in a different part of the shop, Wood put her into some kind of hold and shot her in the chest and abdomen which ended her life. Rather than doing the decent thing and turning the gun on himself, he fled like the coward that he is. He was caught by two officers who made him drop his gun. After he put it on the ground, he picked it back up and aimed it at the officers. He probably realized at this point that ending himself would be better than prison. I bet you'll never guess what happened next. He was shot several times. Yet another misfortune occurred when he survived his injuries and was taken to the hospital where he underwent major surgery to repair all the damage the bullets had done. This motherfucker survived an attempted suicide by cough. His trial took place in February of 1991 and lasted six days. He was found guilty of first-degree murder and two counts of aggravated assault. On July 2, 1991, he was sentenced to death. Lethal injection is the most common method of execution in the US. It's been around for quite a while and until recent years it's been somewhat easy to do. Botched executions with this method are becoming more common due to other countries refusing to sell the proper drugs though. They don't agree with the death penalty so they won't provide us with the necessary materials to make it happen. While that may seem reasonable, I can't help but wonder how much pain could be alleviated if they just let us have the proper drugs. Mm -hmm. It's pretty simple. All the red tape does is make things more difficult, dangerous, and painful. Any state wanting to execute a prisoner will figure it out. If there's a will, there's a way. Until in 2009, most states used a three-drug cocktail to execute the condemned. An anesthetic, a paralytic, and something to stop the heart. Sword and Scale does a great episode on this, in case you haven't heard it already. The episode is plus 58, which you'll have to pay to listen to. You won't regret it though and no mike isn't sponsoring this podcast i just adore his show joseph rudolph wood was executed on july 23rd 2014. i knew that witnesses were always there to watch executions but apparently arizona does theirs on camera his iv lines went in with no issue which is surprising there often seem to be difficulties with finding a vein in the arms of the condemned the execution began at 1.30 p.m. Wood was given midazolam to render him unconscious. He was out cold at 1.57 p.m. but woke up gasping at 2.05. He looked around at all the witnesses which included the family of Debbie and Jean as well as Wood's attorneys and a priest. It appeared to a reporter that Wood grinned and laughed at the family before his head jerked back so he could look at the ceiling. Wood's final statement was not an apology or to ask for forgiveness. I take comfort knowing today my pain stops, and I said a prayer that on this or any other day you may find peace in all of your hearts, and may God forgive you all." This son of a bitch used the opportunity to declare he had found Jesus and hoped that he would forgive them all. The warden asked, Are those your last words? And Wood replied, Yes, sir. Why is it that murderous assholes think that Jesus will forgive them? Is that really how Christianity works? Do as much horrible shit as you want, but so long as you accept Jesus, you'll be forgiven? I have nothing against people who believe in Christianity, but that's one thing that never made sense to me. The drugs used in this execution were midazolam and hydromorphone. Woods' attorneys filed motions expressing concern that the Department of Corrections wouldn't give details about these drugs. The execution was stayed twice. After being sedated, Wood made a snoring, sucking sound repeatedly for an hour and a half before succumbing to a lack of oxygen. The reporter I mentioned earlier counted 640 gasps in that time. At 3.48pm after nearly two hours of Wood drowning on land, a doctor pronounced him still sedated. It was at this time that the witnesses filed out of the death chamber and one of Wood's lawyers stated that the experiment was a failure. Not everyone agreed that this prolonged, probably torturous death was a failure. Debbie's sister said, you don't know what excruciating is. Seeing your dad lying there in a pool of blood, seeing your sister lying there in a pool of blood, that's excruciating. I completely agree. Now don't get me wrong, I'm all for the option of the firing squad in every state. It's quick and probably cheap, certainly easier than playing with a chemistry set and trying to figure out a lethal dose of whatever you manage to get your hands on. The condemned should be given a choice in how they're put to death, but at the same time, Wood never apologized. He never showed any remorse. His final words were uttered simply to cover his own ass in the potential afterlife. He deserved to feel a little bit of the pain that he put the family of his victims through. It was a senseless crime. There are a few conflicting bits of information regarding Wood's last meal. I've seen that it was two cookies, but also that he declined to have anything special and instead ate the sausage and mashed potatoes that was being served to the other prisoners. That was probably his way of trying to make himself look better, but he was correct in the assumption that he doesn't deserve anything special. Fuck you, Joseph. You took two innocent lives for no real reason. May you burn for all eternity in that Arizona heat. Arizona is one of a few states left that use the gas chamber. This option honestly seems better to me than lethal injection. It's not as easy to fuck it up, I'm assuming. The first state to implement the gas chamber was Nevada in 1924. They were looking for a more humane option to end the lives of their condemned inmates. The process is relatively simple. The inmate is strapped into a chair in an airtight chamber and usually has a long stethoscope attached so the doctor can pronounce death. Under the chair, there is a pan of sulfuric acid. Once everyone but the condemned is out of the room, the warden gives the go-ahead for the executioner to flip a switch that drops sodium cyanide into the acid, thus creating hydrogen cyanide gas. Most prisoners struggle or try to hold their breath, but it does no good. Maybe they should have thought about this moment before they committed their atrocities. This method is not without its own brand of hell, however. The prisoner doesn't lose consciousness immediately. It becomes instantly clear that they are suffering. A former warden at the San Quentin State Prison in California said, At first there is evidence of extreme horror, pain, and strangling. The eyes pop, the skin turns purple, and the victim begins to drool. Ultimately, the prisoner dies of hypoxia, which is the lack of oxygen to the brain. After the execution is over and death is pronounced, an exhaust fan sucks all the poisonous air out and the body is sprayed with ammonia to neutralize any traces of cyanide. Nitrogen is an alternative to what's currently used. Oklahoma introduced it in 2017 as an option if the proper lethal injection drugs are unavailable or if that method is found to be unconstitutional. Being a naturally occurring gas in the atmosphere, nitrogen seems like a much more humane method. Basically, the prisoner would have a mask strapped to their face and inhale nitrogen, which would steadily decrease their blood oxygen levels until they passed out and then died of lack of oxygen to the brain. I recall hearing a podcast or watching a TV show years ago. If I had to take a wild guess, I would assume it was the podcast criminal, but don't quote me on that because my memory sucks. Anyway, I listened to some people talking about assisted suicide for the terminally ill, and their method was to use neon gas in a similar fashion. I watched my grandpa suffer with MS for years, most of my life. At the end, he was totally bedridden, hooked up to all kinds of machines, and just wanted to be done with it. My uncle took excellent care of him during his final years. I don't want that to be overlooked. The love he showed to his dad during that last stretch of time was something I hope my kids show me when it's my time to go. My point, though, is that my grandpa was a great candidate for assisted suicide. He expressed many times that he wanted to leave this earth and be free from his pain. MS can really fuck you up. As far as I know, assisted suicide is still illegal almost everywhere, even with a method that seems painless. Maybe the firing squad isn't the best way to execute people. Maybe the assisted suicide advocates have it right on this one. I hope more states will look into nitrogen gas as an alternative instead of experimenting on condemned prisoners with drugs that clearly don't work as they're intended. On January 7, 1982, two men botched the fuck out of an armed bank robbery in Marana, Arizona. A man was killed, and a woman was severely injured during this robbery attempt. The men, Carl and Walter Legrand, were both charged with murder and sentenced to death. The Legrand brothers were German nationals, born in Germany in the early 60s. Neither had the easiest upbringing. Their mother, Emma Gable, was unmarried at the time they were conceived. Walter's father was named as Molina Lopez. Emma claimed that he knew he was the father and wanted to marry her, but Lopez disappeared to the U.S. and was never heard from again. Walter and his older sister Petra lived with their grandmother for a while, but were placed into a children's home. While Walter and Petra were in the children's home, Emma got pregnant with another son, Carl. His father is unknown. Soon after this, Emma met a man named Macy Lee Legrand, who was a U.S. sergeant stationed at a barracks in Augsburg things finally seemed to be getting better for her. Mr. LeGrand wanted to marry Emma and adopt her children. They were married on March 18th, 1966, and a year later returned to the US as a family. Maisie was an outstanding father to the kids even before they were legally adopted in 1968. Unfortunately, he was shipped off to Vietnam, and when he came back, he wasn't as kind to his wife and kids. The family lived in Tucson, Arizona, after coming back from the war, Maisie started to drink heavily and beat Emma in front of the kids. Carl was nine years old the first time he and Walter ran away. When they came back, their father took the belt from his pants and beat him with it. This was admittedly the beginning of their criminal careers. As minors, the brothers set fire to a golf course in Texas which cost $20,000 in damage. And in 1981, they were also convicted of robbing three supermarkets in Tucson in a six-day period. Emma wasn't a very affectionate mother. A social worker wrote about her. She never understood that someone should take their child in their arms and give them a kiss. At this time, Carl was 12, and the marriage between Maisie and Emma was over. When the Legrand brothers got older and decided to commit a bank robbery, they took influence from an American movie they had seen and chose a bank in the middle of the desert close to the freeway. On the morning of January 7th, 1982, at about 8am, the brothers arrived at their target. The bank was empty, so they drove around Murano for a while before returning to the El Taco restaurant next to the bank and asking what time they'd be open. The owner of the restaurant told them 9 o'clock and they left him unharmed. A short while later, the bank manager arrived. His name was Kenneth Hartsock. When he came outside to raise the U.S. and Arizona flags, Carl pulled a gun on him and ordered him into the bank. This turned out to be a fake pistol. A few minutes after that, a bank teller named Don Lopez showed up for work. She saw some cars she didn't recognize in addition to the one belonging to Kenneth and had assumed private business was being conducted. Because of this, Dawn decided to drive around for a bit to kill time. When she came back, she parked her car and headed toward the entrance where Kenneth was speaking with another man. As she passed the Legrand's car, Walter got out and asked her what time the bank opened. Ten o'clock. When she got inside, she saw Kenneth and Carl standing by the bank vault. Carl told her to sit down and opened his coat to reveal a gun. At this point, Walter also came inside and said to his brother, If you can't open it this time, let's just waste them and leave. Kenneth was not able to open the vault as he only had half of the safe combination. The bank employees explained this to the brothers and told them they would have to wait for another employee to arrive. Walter and Carl took their hostages into the office and bound their hands with electrical tape. The brothers became very anxious that the other employee hadn't arrived yet and threatened Kenneth with a letter opener to his throat. They accused him of lying and threatened to kill him if he wasn't telling the truth. The captives were then gagged with bandanas. The final bank employee, Wilma Rogers, arrived at the bank at 8.10 but saw that there were strange vehicles in the parking lot. Rather than walk into what she assumed was a trap, she wrote down the license plate numbers and drove to a grocery store. She used their phone to call the bank. Don answered the phone after her gag was removed, and Wilma asked if she could speak to Kenneth. But Dawn informed her that he wasn't there. Wilma knew this was odd as she had seen his truck in the parking lot. She told Don that her headlights were still on, which wasn't a lie. She said that if Don didn't go out and turn them off, she would call the sheriff. A few minutes later, Wilma asked someone else to call the bank and ask for Kenneth. This person was also told that he wasn't there. She then called the town marshal's office. In the meantime, the Legrand brothers had decided to make Dawn go out and turn off her headlights to make it appear as though nothing was wrong. She was untied and told to go outside and deal with her headlights but was warned that, if you try to go, if you try to leave, we'll just shoot him and leave. We're just going to kill him and leave. She did as she was told and then returned to her makeshift prison where she was retied and sat in a chair facing a corner of the room. Kenneth was a brave man. He made the incorrect assumption that Carl was about to attack Dawn and kicked him in the shins. Carl snapped. Dawn later testified that she heard sounds of a struggle. Dawn was apparently also very brave. Fearing that Kenneth was being hurt, she stood up and broke free from the tape. She saw Kenneth fighting with the two men. Carl was holding him by the shoulders while Walter stood in front of him. Suddenly Walter came at her and began stabbing her until she fell to the floor. At this point, she could see Kenneth on the floor as well. One of the brothers said, just make sure he's dead. Kenneth's throat was slashed, and he suffered 23 other knife wounds. Don was stabbed seven times in the head, side, and shoulder. After the brothers left, Don called for help. When first responders arrived, they determined that Kenneth had already passed on. Don was transported to the hospital, where she recovered from her wounds. The police had no problem identifying with suspects thanks to Wilma's quick thinking and writing down the license plate numbers. They were able to track down a brown and white car belonging to the father of Walter's girlfriend, Karen. The apartment where the brothers had been staying with Karen was put under surveillance. Shortly after, the group left the apartment and began driving. I'm not sure what the hell they were thinking, but they were pulled over very soon after they left. The vehicle was searched along with Karen's apartment. Carl's fingerprint was found at the bank and the briefcase he had been carrying during the robbery attempt was found under a bush in the desert. The evidence was crystal clear. During questioning, Walter made no statement. Smart move. Carl ended up confessing in two separate statements. He took the fall for his brother and claimed that he had been the one to stab the two hostages, not Walter. Both were tried and convicted on all charges the judge decided that death was the appropriate punishment. Because the Legrands were German nationals who had never become U.S. citizens, the state of Arizona had to inform them of their right to receive consular assistance from the German government. U.S. authorities never made them aware of this right, even after realizing that the brothers were not citizens. Carl and Walter learned of this right from another source and contacted the German consulate on their own. They appealed their case on the grounds that they could have mounted a better defense with the help of the German government. The appeal was rejected by U.S. federal courts based on the U.S. Municipal Law Doctrine of Procedural Default, which states that issues cannot be raised in federal court appeals unless they have first been raised in state courts. Karl LeGrand was executed by Gas Chamber on February 24, 1999. After this, the German government took legal action in the International Court of Justice in the U.S. regarding Walter. Only hours before Walter was scheduled to be executed, Germany applied for the court to grant provisional measures requiring the U.S. to prevent his execution. This was to be done without a hearing and without the U.S. being given an opportunity to be heard. It was granted. Germany then went to the Supreme Court for enforcement of these provisional measures. Their judgment was that they did not have jurisdiction over Germany's complaint against the state of Arizona, as the 11th Amendment of the Constitution prohibits federal courts from hearing lawsuits of foreign countries against any U.S. states. After a bunch of legal jargon that I'm frankly too tired to try to convert into English, the Arizona Clemency Board recommended a stay of execution to the governor. The governor ignored this recommendation, and Walter was executed on March 3, 1999. Germany modified its initial complaint to the International Court of Justice to say that the U.S. violated international law when it failed to implement the provisional measures. They were also forced to modify their request for remedies to this complaint, as Walter had been executed and was no longer able to be given a new trial. A legal battle between Germany and the U.S. raged on until 2001, when the International Court of Justice found in favor of Germany. Provisional measures are in fact legally binding, which was a point of contention in this matter. Apparently, it's been a huge issue in international courts for a long time, and this was the first time that a solid decision was able to be made. The English text of the statute of the International Court of Justice says that provisional measures are not binding, while the French text says that they in fact are. I think that's enough legalese for one episode. I also translated a lot from a German article I found. That was easier, as I'm pretty fluent in German. I am, however, not fluent in legalese. Despite protests from Germany, the brothers were both executed by gas chamber for a pretty evil crime. Walter's last words were, To all my loved ones, I hope they find peace. To all of you here today, I forgive you, and I hope I can be forgiven in my next life. Carl used his last words to apologize to the family of Kenneth Hartsock and to Don Lopez. I can't find an exact quote. Walter's last meal was six fried eggs cooked over easy, 16 strips of bacon, goddamn dude, one large portion of hash browns, one pint of pineapple sherbet ice cream, one breakfast steak well done, one 16-ounce cup filled with ice, one 7-up, one Dr. Pepper, one Coke, one portion of hot sauce, one cup of coffee, two packets of sugar, and four Rolades tablets, as a little heartburn would be too much of an inconvenience. Carl's last meal was two bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches on white bread, mayonnaise, four fried eggs over easy, a medium portion of hash brown potatoes, two breakfast rolls, a small portion of strawberry jelly, one half pint of pineapple sherbet ice cream, one 22 ounce cup of hot coffee, black. One medium slice of German chocolate cake with coconut caramel icing. And one 12 ounce cup of cold milk. No roll aids for Carl. He's apparently got an iron stomach. Wir uns in der Or in English, I'll see you both in hell. This next guy, I have no words. In the early morning of November 11th, 1986, in a Flagstaff apartment, John George Brewer and his girlfriend Rita Breyer were arguing. It was an argument that I've personally had with one of my exes. Breyer was fed up with how much Brewer depended on her. I really hope this isn't a common experience, but I've dealt with a handful of men who just cannot get their shit together. No job, no hobbies, no friends, just smoking weed and watching hentai all day while I'm at work. I'm grateful to have found one who isn't a complete waste of a human, but I can definitely empathize with Rita Breyer. It's not an easy conversation to have, especially not when you're pregnant." Later that day, Breyer told Brewer that she wanted to help him live on his own. At this point, he locked her in the bedroom and began to beat and strangle her. A lengthy struggle ensued where Brewer bit her, tried to gouge her eyes out, and choked her with his hands. He then killed her by strangling her with a tie. This kind of shit is why I'll be single forever if anything happens to my husband. This was back in the 80s. People from today are even more entitled and lazy. All of this because she wanted him to pull his own weight and get a life of his own. Oh, and did I mention that she was 22 weeks pregnant? I bet you thought the fucked up part of the story was over, but it's not. It gets worse. After killing Briar... This disgusting piece of garbage took a shower and then had sex with Briar's body. Let that sink in for a minute. He raped the corpse of his pregnant girlfriend. What the fuck? After this, in his only decent moment, Brewer walked to a nearby bowling alley and called the cops to turn himself in. He pled guilty to first-degree murder. He reiterated many times that he deserved the death penalty and criticized civil libertarians who want to forward their own agenda on the back of my case. At least he knows his place. Due to the severity of this disgusting act, Brewer got the death sentence he wished for. In a lot of cases, a guilty plea will end up saving the life of the condemned person, but not this time. The crime was found to be especially heinous and cruel. For whatever reason, the court did not find that the crime was a grave risk of death to others despite Breyer being pregnant. Brewer pled guilty and was sentenced to death. He accepted that. He wanted it. But, of course, there's an automatic appeal. The conviction and sentence were upheld. Then his mother, Elsie Brewer, stepped in to try and get him a stay of execution. As a mother, I understand not wanting to watch your child be put to death, but I also understand the pain of the victim's family. Being so deep into true crime, the question has crossed my mind. How would I react if, God forbid, one of my kids did something fucked up enough to deserve the death penalty? I've watched someone I love get falsely accused and charged with crimes. Two separate times, in fact. I intend to tell these stories at some point down the road. So I see it through a lens of, what if they're innocent? If there was some irrefutable proof, though, I'd have to set my love for my child aside and stand with the victims. The court ruled against Mrs. Brewer, and her son was put to death by lethal injection on March 3rd, 1993. He was the first Arizonan to be executed by a lethal injection. Brewer didn't have any last words, just a thumbs up to the Lutheran minister who attended the execution. His last meal was three grilled pork chops with gravy, a quarter pound of bacon, six fried breaded shrimp, beef fry Ceroni, two or three slices of french bread with butter, applesauce, two cans of canada Dry ginger ale with ice, one slice of coconut cream pie, one pint of orange juice, one can of chicken noodle soup with crackers, one can of pear halves with syrup, and maxwell house coffee with cream and sugar. There are currently only three inmates on death row in hell, I mean Arizona. The longest serving one is a man named Ronald Williams. This man's history has me wondering how the hell he's managed to survive this long. In 1975, he was convicted of killing a police officer and sentenced to life in West Virginia. Four years into his sentence, he managed to escape and killed an off-duty state trooper in the process. Williams traveled around quite a bit and ended up in Arizona. On March 12, 1981, he shot an elderly man by the name of John Buncheck. John had been told of a suspicious man in the neighborhood and went to go check on his neighbors. When he didn't return, his wife went looking for him and found him lying on the ground in a pool of blood at their neighbor's house. West Virginia doesn't have the death penalty, and the governor didn't believe in it. Despite this, he agreed to return Williams to Arizona, working with bases execution, He's still sitting on death row to this day. According to court records, he's escaped from prison eight times. Maybe death row is the best place for him even if they're not planning on executing him anytime soon. I hear it's a lot harder to escape. While this guy may not have the most gruesome crime, he's still a cruel bastard and deserves to be put down. I hope that if hell exists, it's hotter than Arizona. going to do it for this one. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating and review wherever you found me. Tell your friends too. The larger the audience I get, the more likely I am to crank these out on a weekly basis instead of bi-weekly. I'm on Rumble, Podbean, and Podcast Addict. Definitely subscribe if you want more. You can find me on Instagram at LastMealPod. And I'm also kind of thinking about maybe doing a Rumble exclusive stream to talk about current death penalty news and other true crime stuff. If you're interested in that, please let me know. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.